This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Well, hello and welcome back to the E-Commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters from Bobsled Marketing. And today I'm joined by Mike Ferrone, who is the e-commerce business manager at Full Circle Brands. Mike has been in e-commerce for 12 years, starting in performance auto parts on D2C and eBay, leading eventually into Amazon as well. For the past three years, he's been on the brand side working in Vendor Central with Bosca Food Tools and now Full Circle Brands. And at Full Circle, he manages two D2C businesses, the Amazon business and a few of their pure play e-commerce accounts. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So one thing I, I wanted to reach out to you about, because it seems like you've had some real experience in the in this area, is hidden costs when selling on Amazon. Obviously, you have a lot of experience on the, the vendor side as well. I'm curious to hear about what some of the costs or overhead that Amazon places on brands that don't exist in other channels or are more legible in other channels. I think some of the areas that really caught me by surprise when first starting was obvious and most vendors is chargebacks. The co-op fee is what stuck out to me when I first started selling on seller central um, on vendor central, just because in any other industry or in any other retail agreement, a co-op fee covers your marketing costs. It has some built-in either advertising promotions, some email outreach. With Amazon, it's more so pay-to-play to help Amazon recoup some of their own system costs. And everything else is on top of that. Your PPC, your any type of sponsor display, any type of promos, coupons, that's a separate pot on top of that. And that's something that not only has been something to watch out for, it's an area that always becomes difficult to explain up the chain to leadership on why we're paying 10 or 12% in co-op and that's not covering our marketing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a great example because it's such a clear disconnect for an executive to understand, well, this is how 90% of my business works. And then there's this channel that's often struggles for profitability and it works completely differently from a P&L standpoint. Absolutely. And I think another area that is understandable, but Amazon has its own unique spin on it, are the prep fees. They have stricter packaging requirements than any other retailer I've ever dealt with. One thing I see as a positive there is that they can dictate that change for good with new programs like their Compact by Design, where they're pushing and helping to incentivize brands to go towards a more sustainable packaging. At the same time, it makes... A lot of our product development on the packaging level, even in the very beginning, have to factor in these specific requirements for different considerations on D2C only than we normally would just prepping for a retail brick and mortar channel. Hmm. That's an interesting point. Yeah, I completely agree with you about the packaging requirements being ultimately a force for good on like the sustainability front. There's a lot of wastage that happens and Amazon is see such a great volume of items that they have a good understanding of what it 
should take to drive that down. And then the other thing I've heard from a lot of brands is that investing in making their product packaging e-commerce friendly can be one of the biggest sources of profitability in their company or in the e-com P&L at least because so many products are designed for shelf optimized for the shelf and not for e-commerce and that just comes with a lot of waste and you know taking up too much space and things like that in the good old days with toys like make the box there's some trope about when you're designing a toy it's all about making the box take up the most amount of shelf space possible on the toy shelf (laughs) makes sense yeah absolutely i see that myself i have a two-year-old son and a 11 month old daughter. And I see that now as we're ordering toys, it's no longer, you know, as when I was a kid, it was going to Toys R Us and every package was brightly colored, just trying to grab everyone's attention. But now since that purchase is being done online, you're no longer getting that gigantic packaging. It's coming in that small brown box with limited writing and a lot less plastic connectors holding everything in place. So it definitely is a transition into a better space for what we're doing. You know, full circle brands especially is very sustainably oriented. But at the same time, it just takes a bit of a paradigm shift in thinking to get to that point. You have to, a lot of times now start segmenting your channel space for that reason. Yep. Yep. Totally. And separate, but related to that is the the prep costs, which you mentioned, which is that you can have e-commerce friendly packaging across multiple channels, but Amazon still requires things to be done a little bit differently in terms of getting items ready to send to the warehouse and and all of that. Anything else you wanted to add there? Yeah, actually, that's one of the areas that we found the most success in leaning into our Amazon successes. So for full circle brands in particular, a lot of our products, we were born as a retail brick and mortar type of brand. We have distribution in grocery and department stores. And a lot of our products are meant to be hung up. They're minimal packaging. So if you think a dish brush, kitchen cloths, and because of that, it doesn't mesh with Amazon's goals for that type of packaging. Mm. So what we've started to do more and more is balance out the need for e-commerce specific packaging to protect, as well as making sure that we're not straying away from our minimal waste mission statement, that we're not providing extra packaging where there needs to be none. So that became a bit of a challenge early on. And I believe about 18 months back is when we started looking at our top items by velocity and working at the factory level at Amazon-specific packaging. So some of them were more complex, where for our ceramic and breakable items, we had new cardboard packages that now can be plain, not too printed, because the advertising work is done online, not on the shelf. Mm. Other items, like our dish cloths and dish brushes, we wound up begging to follow Amazon's rules. But what we did that I think was special is we used PLA compostable bags. So instead of being made of petroleum-based plastics, they're made of a corn-based film that will break down. So we're trying to cover both bases. Our items are protected, our prep charges go down. And at the same time, we're making sure that since plastic reduction is a huge goal of ours, we're not contributing to that just for the Amazon channel. And it's been really great for us. And what we now look at is that anytime a new item starts to get that same type of velocity where we can justify a separate skew, we're now rolling into that with the Amazon specific packaging. And what that's done is our own D2C site, which has been growing tremendously over the last few months, benefits from those same 
actions that we normally wouldn't be able to make changes specific to the DHC channel. But with that combined volume of Amazon and the website, it's really gone hand in hand and helped us improve that packaging. That is a great story. Thank you for sharing that because that, that's something as a consumer that really bugs me is I understand the need for poly bags, but it seems so wasteful. And I, I, I really hate that as a shopper when something comes over packaged and yeah, so that that's it's great to know that that solution is out there and you're finding success with scaling that across multiple e-com channels. Great. Now, I also understand that you've had some good success with dealing with chargebacks in Vendor Central. Is that somewhat related to packaging and and inventory prep? Yeah, so the packaging and prep chargebacks were for us a combination of the most complicated, but in the long run, one of the easiest for us to start designing around. On the other side, and what I've seen in previous jobs working in Vendor Central, which can be some of the most difficult, is the fulfillment and logistics side. So PO accuracy, carton labels, ASN accuracy, those have always been very tough for me. At Full Circle, we're very lucky that, you know, like a lot of brands, we have a third-party logistics warehouse we work with, but the one we are in is very experienced in vendor central operations. They work with routing and shipping for dozens of customers for vendor central with very high velocity. So now with just continuing to stay on top of them, keeping the KPIs in check and always having those chargeback potential top of mind, our operations team has been tremendous and helped to chip that away. Are we 100% free of logistics chargebacks? No. Some of it you have to fight. Some of it, you just have to understand that's the cost of doing business. And with Amazon, a lot of this is that you have to factor in how much of this can I absorb on a P&L, always looking to improve that, but at the same time, understanding that you know fighting every little bit of it might be a losing battle. But in that way, it's been a, a really great piece where we just look for always a better progress, staying on top and a little better, chipping away costs little by little, amplifies through the P&L in the long run. Yeah, that's really interesting. So what... You mentioned part of the solution is a having a 3PEL that is very experienced with vendor central operations. What kind of things does your great 3PEL catch or not do that a inexperienced 3PEL might do? One of the biggest issues when I was at my last job and I was routing vendor central shipments directly was I've always found that Amazon's routing system is not perfect and the carriers they contract with quite a bit. There are issues, there are delayed pickups. And if that's not being managed with so many orders going out each week, that can just lead to, besides any chargebacks, besides any issues, in the end, it's going to lead to stock issues in Amazon. Your inventory is not going to be in a strong position. So we've had that quite a bit where our warehouse is very good at being on top of what orders are supposed to go out when. And if a pickup doesn't happen, they are diligently on the phone making appointments and pressuring on that side. Like anything else, when with a system that big, things fall through the cracks on the Amazon side. So having that partner who knows the issues that can go wrong, the chargebacks that can happen, and basically how one link in that chain can delay receipt shipment and receiving quite a bit has helped tremendously. What they've also been really good at is making sure carton counts are accurate. And they've been really great at calling out anything on the ASN 
labeling signs on the carton labels inside as well that in the past would have been missed by a warehouse that was just sticking labels on and not paying attention. So I think it's been really great just all around having a set of eyes that treat the process as if it's their own business. So that's really important in a 3PL. I've been in many other places in the past where it's an in and out procedure, but you know, with having my own warehousing when I was working in auto parts, where I was on the ground, I was monitoring the shipping, giving up that control has always been a little bit scary. But when you have the partner, it's an extension of your team and not something that is keeping you apart, farther apart. Every Amazon seller is familiar with the importance of having the capital to seize growth opportunities. That's why Payoneer, the sponsor of today's episode, developed their working capital solution specifically for online sellers. Payoneer's Capital Advance offers e-sellers selling on Amazon and Walmart up to 750k advancement instantly loaded, a gradual sediment collected from future marketplace receivables, always leaving you with some funds to manage the day-to-day and an attractive fixed fee. Skip the credit checks and learn about bringing your e-commerce vision to life by visiting payoneer.com slash funding. Again, that's payoneer.com slash funding. You'll even get a special 10% fee rebate on your first offer. Thanks, Payoneer. I have a feeling that you're going to get a lot of DMs after this episode asking who your 3PL is. (laughs) It's like anything else. Finding the right partner is a diamond in the rough. Yeah, great. So actually, there was a question I wanted to ask you on that. On partnerships, you're a client of Bobsled Marketing, working with you on the Instacart side of the house. What have you found in terms of identifying partners on the marketplace management side of things, what advice would you give to your peers out there for selecting agencies? Just like I mentioned for a warehouse, the most important thing is finding somebody who's going to be able to treat your business as if it's your own. And the reason I bring that up is important is I I am definitely, I wouldn't say a control freak, but I want to make sure that everything's running to its peak. I'm guilty too often of being able to take on quite a bit and not being able to delegate it enough, which I'm getting better at, I hope. But as part of that, with Vendor Central, with Instacart, I want to have somebody who not only has the expertise to manage it and hopefully manage it better than I would on my own, but be really proactive, see what new options there are for Instacart, for trying to pitch new ad campaigns or to scale in certain areas has been really big for us. One thing that's been really great so far with Instacart that was really impressive was we had tried for six months to try to get onto Instacart's ad platform. I had Me and my manager had signed up under different accounts. We had reached out to Instacart 10 different ways. We could not get onboarded. We had an Instacart account two days after signing on with Bobsled. We had access. And now more importantly, now we're able to, through their library, make updates to our products as they show across every platform on Instacart, which is huge for us because we want to control how our products look. When I reached out to other agencies to do this in the past, it really felt like they had a set it and forget it type of model. We need that proactivity and it's been really strong for us. And that Instacart experience is what convinced us to now jump on for full Amazon channel management as well. That's great to hear. I'm very pleased with that feedback. Thanks for sharing that. So 
One of my recent guests on the show, Mindy Fashaw from Packview, who's our tech partner, managing carrying the Instacart and Amazon advertising you just mentioned. She talked about brands often over-indexing on metrics like ROAS and ACOS as a way to determine the effectiveness of their marketing strategy. And her point was that, look, I can get your ACOS to be as low as as you want it, but I'm only going to be targeting super long tail branded keywords that I know people are going to convert on. So the more important thing there is to understand what are the business objectives before identifying what metrics are needed to support them. And often it's not actually ROAS or ACOS. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that philosophy from the brand side, how you've seen that play out with the brands that you've worked with. Absolutely. I definitely agree with that because you can manipulate the ROAS to meet a number you need to hit. Our previous Amazon agency, I felt that we got that at times where we had a target ROAS, but if we weren't hitting it, they would just reduce spend and kind of retreat back into a comfortable ROAS number, but growth isn't there. If you reach that narrow audience and we see it on social too, we can retreat to our core audience that we know sells really well, but we're not getting growth. We're not getting market share. We're just living in a false reality. So you can be the biggest fish in a small pond, but you're not reaching something much wider. Where more important to me is a lower ROAS, that might be a break-even point, or even you know if you're in a growth phase, spending a little extra to get there, reaching that wider audience that is not going to be always a golden number to look at, but it's going to be a place that will get you those new eyeballs, to get you those new customers who are not in that small, comfortable base you're in. Yep, 100%. So something else that we're really starting to get some more data around and proof points, and it's something that lots of practitioners have suspected for a while but have not been able to prove necessarily, is a halo effect between sales channels, particularly online. So if you're running a Facebook ad campaign to your D2C site, you might see a jump in Amazon sales. Or if you're running a, running a big Amazon campaign, you might actually see sales jump on other retailers. So have you seen, first, just interested to see if you've seen that play out in in your work? And if so, how do you balance the need between the, how do you balance needing to track the performance of a channel, but then also understanding that there's a halo effect going on? Yeah, it's it's extremely fluid. We've seen that ourselves. Customers are not stuck to one channel. I see it in my own shopping behavior. I might do more research on a manufacturer's website and then buy it on Amazon because I'm ordering on Amazon every day anyway on a Prime account. Vice versa, we see quite a bit of our repeat customers on our own direct-to-consumer site. When we survey them and take sample sizes, they originally found us on Amazon. It's worked both ways for us. And that's why I think it's really tough to silo Amazon away from direct-to-consumer efforts. Before I started here at Full Circle, there was no direct e-commerce position. One team handled the website. Our sales team handled Amazon. And the point of bringing them together was really the fact that there's so much overlap, it's really a blurred line. And I think one place that is, I like to see Amazon is a great place there is that customers try our products more there. They discover a product for a need. So they're not searching full circle cast iron scrub brush. They're searching a cast iron cleaning tool. They find our product, they get it in their order. And then our goal is when they have that product in their hand with our logo on the handle, 
they now know us and what we're seeing more and more is now they're coming to our website. They're finding us there and building a large shopping cart around it. So they start with fulfilling a need from an unknown brand and now they become brand loyal. And it's been a really cool experience for us in some way that we're continuing to explore further. That's really interesting. So I just want to clarify something there that your organization actually brought together the sales and e-com teams recognizing that having shared goals was better than separate goals. Is that a fair absolutely. summary? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's because it's, it's all a bit of a unified structure. You know, we, we our, our advertising goals while being slightly different are all leading to the same goal. E-commerce, no matter where it is, those customers don't stay in one place. Where in traditional brick and mortar, you know, if you were selling to the grocery channel, you know, that customer's coming back to usually the same grocery chain pretty often. Online, it's it's so it changes by the minute, it changes by the promotion, it changes by the deal and what the comfortable the customer feels comfortable. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So I want to get some points of view from you about the wider industry and things going on. So what's something that you've changed your mind about recently? Something that's been I've always been a little iffy about is social commerce. I feel like early on the push to try to make products shoppable directly on Instagram and Facebook have had iffy results. Now with Shopify's increased integration into the Facebook ecosystem with more of a one-click shop experience purchasing or purchasing directly on Facebook and Instagram are becoming more, more commonplace. I think that's an area we're continuing to lean into and learn more on. And I'm very curious to see long-term customer adoption outside of the short-term Fad. And I think that's where it's become more of a discovery platform of not just, I like that product, but more of an impulse buy. And that's an area that I see as growing pretty quickly soon, especially with everything being so mobile optimized, you're meeting the customers where they are. And I'm hoping that that becomes just like I mentioned for our Amazon customers, that we get customers who might buy a single product that they discover on a social platform. And then once they use it and they know us, they come to our site directly and interact with the full Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I want to underscore a statement you made, which was meet the customers where they are. And that's 100% my point of view as well. It's that, yeah, you, you can't be absolutely everywhere. That's come through difficult to maintain and optimize all of these channels. But to the extent that you can recognize that some people prefer to shop on Amazon, they're prime members, they want to make the most of it, or it's just more convenient to them. Whereas other other customers are really have a much higher preference to shopping in store. I mean, it's are you going to try and change someone's shopping behavior. It's a little unrealistic. So I love that point of view that you raised. Yeah, I think it's important. I've, I've dealt with it in previous jobs where the thought has always been, well, just get the customers to our site, which is a, a beautiful thought in theory. But when 50% of customers are starting their journey on Amazon, you have to be ready to not only see them there and meet them there, but convert them there. And yes. in long term, many of those customers might never come off Amazon. And that's not a problem. Build a business to be profitable doing that. But also have every step of the way. We can represent our brand a bit better on our own site with our own branding and our long tail content. But at the same time, we want to make sure that if it's Amazon, if it's, you know, if it's Wayfair, if it's Walmart, if it's any point where a customer starts that experience, if we're not there, somebody else is. Someone is filling a niche. So it's stubborn to think that we can just 
set up camp in the areas we feel comfortable with and that the people will come. People I can, will show yeah. up. You're losing, you're leaving something on the table there. That's I think a waste. Yeah. You're right about driving, driving a potential customer into the arms of a competitor. They're going to be bidding on your brand search term if you're not there. So it's a bit of a false economy. I actually wanted to go back to something you mentioned before, which is when you surveyed your customers, some of them mentioned that they first bought your your products from Amazon. Is there any, although we're in agreement that meet the customers where they are and make it easy easy for them wherever they want to transact, have you had any successes you can share about getting customers back to your D2C side or is it really not something that you choose to focus on? It's an area that we've tossed around. We have some strategies we want to try. You know, there's the idea of, you know, either insert cards to steer people back to our site. When I was doing merchant fulfilled shipments on Amazon at my previous job selling auto parts, it was very easy because at the time of shipment, just like many other Amazon customers get, we were able to put in an insert card with a coupon coming back to our site. With Vendor Central, combined with the fact that we have a lot of mixed stock that could show up at Amazon, it could show up at retail, it's very difficult to try to do an insert there. And also, you know, there's very rules. little chance Amazon's <laughs> it's rules. also <laughs> yeah. not worth risking. Absolutely. Mm. You know, where a company selling phone cases, they can get away with it because they can pop up somewhere else. I'm not going to risk my established brand's Amazon presence over something silly like that. Totally. What we have done is when we have customers who we try to survey them, we try to reach out to it. It's more of a passive model that we try to work with that customer. And we try to more and more understand what our Amazon customers are buying and making sure that those products are very well represented on our site, that we know that there's a weird dichotomy that the products that sell really well on Amazon aren't necessarily our top sellers on our website and vice versa. So what we've been doing now is taking that information cross-pollinating and then building campaigns on Amazon to get those D2C top sellers promoted and vice versa. So that's one way that we've seen some growth is really not necessarily, you know, understanding that our customers on Amazon are for the most part, not searching full circle home all the time. They're searching the generic product and we're winning that. So we're building our Google ad campaigns to capitalize on that, to try to find those customers who are off Amazon already or getting the Amazon customer to repeat back to our site. We haven't had a direct strategy that we felt comfortable that wouldn't break the rules. Yeah. But it's been more that we we just really hope that once that customer gets the products in hand, they're looking at the wider assortment. They're coming on our site and building a cart from our wide product line. And it's something that we're still in our infancy surveying our customers on that type of question, but it's going to play into what we do a lot more and trying to understand where are our customers coming from and where are they shopping. Yep. That makes total sense. What are you excited about in the world of e-commerce right now? One area I'm really excited about is Shopify, which I'm a big fan of. I'll talk about it to for hours on end <laughs> on the platform. It's, I'm in love with Shopify and how easy they make everything. They are just continuing to integrate into so many more areas. So as I mentioned on the Facebook, Instagram integrations that allow shops to create it more easily. Recently, a Walmart integration that makes selling on the Walmart marketplace so much easier to dip your toes into where it all comes out of the Shopify catalog easily. And then 
now they're building more integrations into Google for shopping, where it's becoming no longer just a content hub for hosting website data. It's becoming a one-stop shop that is not fully replacing other tools yet, but it's going that way. It's becoming something that, you know, somebody can start their at-home business making jewelry and succeed on Shopify, but it's also scalable into seven-figure businesses without problem. So it's really cool that the same platform allows the same tools to do all of that. It's very modular. Very cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. Mike, it was great to speak with you. Really glad to have you on board as a client as well and hope to bring you back again to talk about what's new and great in e-commerce and marketplaces at another time as well. Thank you so much. I'd be glad to anytime. time.